We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. away we go. Episode 106 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, July 22nd, 2021. And yes, I said Thursday. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. I got this tweet from Mark this week. Writes Mark, my man, I really miss Go Go Thursday with you. Yes, Mark. I miss Go-Go Thursday, too. I do. My weekly paying of homage to the music of the nation's capital. I did Go-Go Thursday for years. I had people compose and record songs and email them to me. Go-Go Thursday was a very special thing. But as I said when I started this podcast five months ago, I'm only going to do Go-Go Thursday on the pod if I can do Go-Go Thursday right. And because of the strict copyright rules with music and podcast land, Go-Go Thursday on the pod cannot be as simple as me just playing whatever Go-Go music we want. Trust me, I wish Go-Go Thursday on the pod would be that simple. So if Backyard Band and Junkyard Band and CCB and the estates of Chuck Brown and Lil Benny want to give me permission to use their music, I'm down. I'm totally into that. But otherwise, Go-Go Thursday 
on the pod is tough. And I'm not just going to play non-copyrighted go-go music. I'm not just going to play generic sludge go-go music. We have a high standard on this podcast, which I recorded in my lavish basement studio in which pillows and blankets serve as soundproofing. But hello to a Thursday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. This will be one of the more diverse shows that you'll ever hear because I'm going to talk Washington football team, Nationals, Capitals, Wizards, and Orioles, all five of the big five in terms of major pro sports in the DMV. The position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team heading into training camp will continue with a discussion about safety. There's a lot going on for Washington at safety. The Landon Collins situation, year two of Cameron Curl, the competition at free safety, what Washington may have in fifth round rookie Derek Forrest. I'm going to get into all of those things as well as explore one of the great phenomenons in Washington, D.C. sports. And by great, I mean terrible. The curse at safety for Washington since the death of Sean Taylor. Our guest on the show, another one of my former co-workers, Scott Jackson. You know, that was one of my goals during this break between the Washington football team's offseason practices and training camp, to have on some old pals, to have on some friends of Galdi, some fog, F-O-G. I had Kevin Sheehan on in episode 100, had Doc Walker on in episode 101, and we'll have Scott Jackson on in this episode 106. There will be more to come, trust me, Uh, but Jackson has been the host of the official radio postgame show for what is now the Washington football team for the last five seasons. So we'll talk Washington football team and also talk Wizards. Scott knows the Wizards very well, used to host their post-game radio show. So we'll discuss the hiring of Wes Unsell Jr. as head coach, the potential for a major move by the Wizards this offseason, and more. Speaking of a potential major move by the Wizards, I do want to talk about the report on Wednesday that LeBron James and his Los Angeles Lakers are on the hunt for a veteran point guard, and among the potential targets is Russell Westbrook of the Wizards. Would trading Westbrook make sense? You know, there's been so much talk over the last year plus about the Wizards maybe trading Bradley Beal. What about now trading Westbrook? What would that mean for the Wizards, especially regarding Beal? I have plenty to say about that. I'm talking Nationals next segment. Analysis of their 3-1, 10-inning loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park on Wednesday night when we also had bad news for the Capitals. This was not what you wanted to see happen, and yet it is precisely what happened. Goaltender Vitek Vanacek selected in the expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken. What was basically the worst-case scenario for the Caps happened. I have plenty of thoughts of that. And I'll talk some Orioles late in the show as they blew it at the Tampa Bay Rays on Wednesday afternoon. Gave up two runs in the bottom of the ninth for a 5-4 loss. Although, when you're tanking, blowing it is actually killing it. See, that's the good thing about a tanking team. You can never be that sad about a loss. So if you're a contending team, that's that's a heartbreaker. That's a gut-wrenching setback. You give up two runs in the bottom of the ninth like that. But if you're a tanking team, whatever. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to pile up the L's this season. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com, including if you would like to become a sponsor of the Al Galdi podcast. If you would like for the power of the pod to work for you. Football season 
is fast approaching. We have all kinds of exciting discounted packages that we're offering. So if you would like to grow your practice or business, now is the time. You know, I actually looked at some demo numbers for listeners to this podcast the other day. We skew young. We skew very young. My biggest demo is 18 to 24. 30% of all listeners to this podcast are between the ages of 18 to 24. Now, we have plenty of older listeners too, but the biggest demo is 18 to 24. At the same time, we have a lot of successful people listening to this podcast. A lot of, shall we say, big machers listening. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, I'm very proud of the type of listener this podcast attracts. You people, you have a lot going for you. Pat yourselves on the back. Tweet from Zim on my conversation with former NFL executive Joe Banner talking Washington football team on Wednesday's show, episode 105. Right, Zim, I love Banner's opinion on quarterback. I've been so against your zig while others zag position this whole offseason. If you want to consistently compete, you have to have an elite quarterback. You have to risk it for quarterback. Even if you fail, it's the way that it needs to be done. So yeah, I'm not against taking a big swing at quarterback. I'm not against making a major trade up in a draft to take a quarterback. I was from the get-go in favor of the trade up in the 2012 draft to take RG3. In fact, I did the very first show on 980 after the news of the trade broke. The news of the trade broke on the Friday night of Selection Sunday weekend in 2012. I was doing a Saturday morning show at the time. And so I spent the next morning show talking all about the trade. And I was very much in favor of the trade. My whole point with the zigging while others are zagging theory is if you don't love the quarterback for whom you are trading up, then don't trade up. Only take the big swing if you have love for the guy. If you have reasonable certainty that the guy is going to be good. If you like the guy, but don't love the guy, if you have major concerns about the guy, if you're wishy-washy about the guy, then don't trade up for the guy. Don't just do it to do it. Don't just do it because you feel like you have to do it because you don't already have on your roster a potential long-term franchise quarterback. Make the big trade up. Take the big swing because you truly believe in the person for whom you are trading up, because you truly believe in the person for whom you are swinging Uh, Too many of these big trade-ups and drafts for quarterbacks are failing. We have to stop ignoring that and start saying, okay, is there maybe a better, smarter way to approach this, to attack this? It's funny, the trade-ups for quarterbacks that seem to work the best are the trade-ups outside of the top five, like the Kansas City Chiefs trading up to take Patrick Mahomes at number 10 in the 2017 draft, the Buffalo Bills trading up to take Josh Allen at number seven in the 2018 draft. Too many recent trade-ups in the top fives have wound up with the teams making the trade-ups, regretting the trade-ups, even though some of these guys have had some success. But you think about like Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, Mitchell Trubisky, Sam Darnold. But yeah, I am a major proponent of trading up. I am a major proponent of behaving boldly. Success belongs to the bold, not just in sports, but in life. You have to be aggressive, but you can't just be wildly aggressive. You can't be recklessly aggressive. You have to pick your spots. You know, you want to be astutely aggressive. Speaking of behaving in an astute manner, how is Mike Rizzo going to behave when it comes to the MLB trade deadline on July 30th? 
So Mike Rizzo in his chat with reporters on Tuesday said that he's taking a dual path right now regarding the MLB trade deadline on July 30th. Nats could be buyers. Nats could be sellers. The Nats play over the next week plus is to determine which path is ultimately taken. There is an onus that has been put on the Nats to play well. The Nats did win their series against the lowly Miami Marlins at Nationals Park, but the Nats did not sweep the series. A 3-1, 10-inning loss to the Marlins on Wednesday night. Nats fell to 45-50 and on the season and are back to being six games behind the National League East leading New York Mets, who won at the Cincinnati Reds 7-0 on Wednesday. Now, truth be told, the Nats would really have to fall on their faces over the next few days here for Mike Rizzo to be put into a position in which he has to sell, right? Like this NL East is so underwhelming that unless the Nats like get swept at the Orioles this weekend and then say lose the first three games of the four game series at the Philadelphia Phillies next week, the Nats are still going to very much be in the thick of things in the National League East. You would think come the middle of next week when Mike Rizzo truly is going to have to make a decision. Okay, are we in or are we out? when it comes to this season? Are we buyers or are we sellers when it comes to this July 30th MLB trade deadline? And I just don't see that happening. I mean, the Orioles are, like we talked about, a tanking team. So the notion of the Nats getting swept at the Orioles this weekend, especially when the Nats will be throwing Max Scherzer in game two of the series, just very hard to see. And I mean, the Nats have their flaws, but the Nats are not some terrible team either. So I really think that they're going to be in the thick of things here because the division, again, isn't very good. Now, I think there's a larger conversation to have of, okay, so maybe the Nats are in the thick of things, but is that still reason enough not to sell given the state of the farm system? But I've never felt like the Nats want to sell. You know, selling is not something the Nats have done since the Nats got good beginning with the 2012 season. And some of that is because the Nats have been good pretty much each season. But some of that too is even when the Nats have not been very good, the Nats still have been very reluctant to sort of concede that the team isn't very good, right? Like in 2018, the Nats did not want to sell. The Nats did not trade away Bryce Harper. The Nats basically didn't do anything until August of that year in terms of trading off pieces, right? Daniel Murphy, Gio Gonzalez, etc. Well, on Wednesday night, we did have a rare bad night for the Nationals offensively these days. The Nats scored less than four runs in a game for the first time since the All-Star break. The Nats scoring just one run over 10 innings. Nats had just six hits, a double and five singles, worked three walks, but went 0 for 7 with runners in scoring position and hit into four double plays. The double plays drove you nuts in this game. Trey Turner hit into two double plays, one in the bottom of the first, one in the bottom of the fifth. That one ended the bottom of the fifth. Juan Soto, hit into another double play. Uh, His ended the bottom of the third. And Josh Bell hit into a double play. His ended the bottom of the sixth inning. It was not a good game for Josh Bell. He went 0 for 4 with a strikeout. It was not a good game for, say, Gerardo Parra. He was the Nats starting left fielder. He went 0 for 4 with a strikeout. We also had this too. And look, the Nats have done well offensively lately, so I don't want to go too nuts on the Nats struggling. But Ryan Zimmerman had a pinch ground out for the second out in the bottom of the 10th inning. You know, one of the things about Zim for this season was supposed to be, well, he'll be a really nice bat off the bench. You know, Ryan Zimmerman, the pinch hitter. Think about the kind of weapon he could be in that role. Uh, Ryan Zimmerman now on the season is four for 31 as a pinch hitter. Ryan Zimmerman now on the season has an OPS of 419 
as a pinch hitter. Now, look, four for 31, small sample size, yes. Zimmerman has done some very good things, especially earlier in this season from a power hitting standpoint. He had a big double in the Nats win on Tuesday night. But I think that's notable here that, you know, for all the talk about what the Nats bench, Ryan Zimmerman and what he could be, uh, he's done very little in that pinch hitting role so far this year. It is a reminder, by the way, that pinch hitting is a skill and it's not something that everyone is good at. And just because you're a good everyday player, not that Zim is a good everyday player anymore. He can't be an everyday player anymore. But like if, if you took, say, you know, Juan Soto and you said, all right, you're going to start pinch hitting for us for the next week. There's no guarantee that like he would be great in that role. It's a different role. You've got to stay into the game. You've got to be able to come off the bench and, you know, be loose enough and be warmed up enough to where you're good to go from a batting standpoint. Uh, You're never quite sure when you might be used, so you have to always be mentally prepared to be used. It's not the easiest thing to do. It's not something everyone can do. And, you know, maybe Zim is just struggling in a pinch hitting role because he's struggling. Again, it's a small sample size. Or maybe it's not a role that really is best suited for him. Uh, We'll see. But uh, yeah, four for 31 is Zimmerman so far on the season as a pinch hitter. Some good news, though, from Wednesday night was that Alcides Escobar played. Uh, There was some doubt about this. Alcides Escobar, in that win for the Nats on Tuesday night, left the game in the Nats' three-run sixth inning of getting hit on his right forearm slash wrist on a two-out hit by pitch from Marlins reliever Richard Blyer, the former Oriole. Well, Escobar was out there and playing on Wednesday night. So great to see that. The hit by pitch on Tuesday night did not look good. Uh, Escobar was in some real pain. That had broken wrist, broken hand written all over it, but that is not what ended up happening here. So I guess maybe, you know, a bruise, a contusion, but not much more. So we think, you know, uh, so appears to be the case with Escobar having played on Wednesday night. And he got on base three times. I mean, this is what Alcides Escobar has been doing for the Nats. He went one for four with a single and a hit by pitch. And he reached base via error. Uh, Escobar had a first pitch leadoff single in the bottom of the first. He reached base via a fielding error by Marlins shortstop Miguel Rojas on a slow roller that went under Rojas's glove in perhaps an instance of Escobar forcing the error with his speed. Escobar can still run pretty well and so that baseball went right under the glove of Miguel Rojas. Uh, that all happened in the uh, bottom of the third to begin the bottom of the third. And then Escobar drew a one-out hit by pitch in the bottom of the fifth inning. It's not really pretty with Alcides Escobar. He gets on base in like a lot of trashy ways, you know, hit by pitches, errors, etc. But he gets on base and he did it again on Wednesday night. And again, just the fact that he was out there playing on Wednesday night, I thought was a win for the Nats. Uh, Juan Soto did get on base a couple of times. In this game, one for three with a single a walk and a stolen base. He had a two-at-five pitch walk and a stolen base in the bottom of the first. Had a leadoff single in the bottom of the sixth inning. Josh Harrison had another good game. One for three with a single and a walk. And how about the walk? Really good piece of hitting by Harrison in that plate appearance. A one-out, 11-pitch walk in the Nats. One-run fourth inning, despite Harrison having been down in the count at 1.12. He also had a two-out single in the bottom of the sixth. Harrison ended up having a really nice series. We know Soto ended up having a really nice series. And Tres Barrera had himself a really nice series. He ends up being the Nats starting catcher and number eight batter in all three games. And he had another hit in the game on Wednesday night. One for four with a single, two out full count single in the bottom of the second inning. We're still waiting on the returns of Jan Gomes and Alex Avila from the 10-day injured list. And, uh, you know, it may be a while, especially for Gomes. Remember, Gomes' injury is an oblique injury. Those things can be nasty. Those things can take a while. Gomes is obviously an older player, so I wouldn't hold my breath on Jan Gomes being back 
anytime soon. And so in the meantime, it may well be that Tres Pereira is your new everyday catcher here. He certainly is holding up his end of the bargain with what he's done uh, over these last few games. Really good series offensively. Another hit for him in the game on Wednesday night. We also had this for the Nats in this game. Andrew Stevenson, again, was the national starting center fielder. Victor Robles ends up starting just one of the three games in this series. We know how things have gone for Robles this season. He's had a terrible season as a batter. We also know that Davey Martinez is not shy about demoting Robles, uh, throwing shade on Robles. Uh, Victor Robles was supposed to be the Nats' leadoff batter this season. Davey pulled the plug on Robles as a leadoff batter so quickly, okay? Long before we could say with certainty that Robles was having a bad season as a batter. Davey has batted Robles in the number nine spot behind the pitcher a bunch of times this season. And lately, with the Nats having these ragamuffin lineups, Davey still has been batting Robles in the number eight spot. You know, batting Robles behind the likes of, say, Jordy Mercer and Alcides Escobar. I mean, it's very telling. The actions speak louder than words. Davey very clearly is frustrated with Victor Robles. And now we're at the point at which it's not even a given anymore that Victor Robles is the Nats' everyday center fielder. That really stood out to me in this series. Andrew Stevenson starting in center field in games one and three. And Stevenson, to his credit, did a good job in this 3-1, 10-inning loss to the Marlins at Nationals Park on Wednesday night. One for three with an RBI double and a walk. Uh, Stevenson had a two-out four-pitch walk in the bottom of the second and a two-out RBI double in the bottom of the fourth. The Nats starting pitcher on Wednesday night was Eric Fetty. He was good, and it was good to see this. Uh, Fetty good for the first time in four starts since coming off the 10-day injured list. So Eric Fetty was on the 10-day injured list from June 27th, retroactive to June 24th, to July 6th with a left oblique strain. His first three starts off the 10-day IL did not go well, including his most recent outing coming into the game on Wednesday night. The 24-8 loss to the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park last Friday night. Fetty in that game charged with six runs in one and a third innings. He could not throw a strike to save his life. Four walks, he threw just 29 strikes versus 28 balls. Fetty in this game against the Marlins on Wednesday night, so much better. And look, the Marlins are a really bad offensive team that happens to be missing multiple key offensive players right now. So you got to take this result with a grain of salt, just like you had to take John Lester's seven scoreless innings in the Nats game one win with a grain of salt. But still, Fetty did a good job on Wednesday night. One run unearned in six innings. He had four strikeouts versus one walk. He gave up just four hits, a double, and three singles. He did a good job of throwing first pitch strikes and of being pitch efficient. He only threw 84 pitches over the six innings. Got into some trouble in the top of the fourth in which he gave up a run, but the run ended up being unearned. Uh, Fetty in that inning gave up a first pitch leadoff double to Starling Marte, uh, but you also had a fielding error by Josh Harrison at third base. Fetty did issue a four-pitch walk of Jesus Aguilar to load the bases, and then the run scored on a double play, a first-pitch run-scoring double play off the bat of Joe Panic. Not much to complain about with Eric Fetty's outing on Wednesday night. He needed that. He delivered that. I mean, look, Fetty had pitched well for a good chunk of this season, goes on the 10-day IL, struggles coming off it, is facing, again, a really bad offensive team that is depleted, and Fetty did exactly what he should have done. I mean, it would have been disappointing had he not done this. He does this, one run unearned 
in six innings. And then the Nats bullpen, I thought overall was actually good in the game. Uh, you know, things end up not going well in the top of the 10th inning, but Kyle Finnegan tossed a perfect top of the seventh. Daniel Hudson tossed a scoreless top of the eighth. And Brad Hand tossed a perfect top of the ninth. You were rolling from a bullpen standpoint in this game. And then things came apart in the top of the 10th, in which Brad Hand gave up two runs, one of which, of course, was unearned because of the runner at second base to start the inning. So Hand gave up a one-out seven-pitch walk to John Birdie, a one-out first-pitch RBI double to Jorge Alfaro. That's the hit that gave the Marlins a 2-1 lead in the top of the 10th inning. And then Hand gave up a one-out RBI sack fly to Miguel Rojas for a 3-1 Marlins lead. So yes, the inning began with the runner on second base, but also, yes, Hand had that one-out walk at John Birdie. Hand gave up that one-out RBI double to Alfaro. So you can't sit here and say, well, geez, if not for the runner on second base, Brad Hand would have tossed two clean innings. Like, no, Brad Hand played a role in the Nats' demise, but I mean, it's not like he got tattooed, and I still did like a good chunk of what we saw. The Nats lost this game on Wednesday night because they scored one run over 10 innings. Like, that's what went wrong on Wednesday night. Don't get caught up in the pitching. Don't get caught up in the extra inning rule. Like, those are uh, to distract you from what was the real cause of the loss, which was the offense not doing well, but the offense has been doing well lately. So I don't think you go too nuts with the Nats having lost this game. No game for the Nats on Thursday. They then have a three-game series at the American League Worst Orioles this weekend. Game one Friday night at 7.05, Patrick Corbin will start. Game two Saturday evening, 6.35, Max Scherzer will start. And then game three Sunday afternoon at 1.05, John Lester will start. So specific to Lester, right? You're trying to get right. Well, your last outing was against the Marlins. You feasted on them to the tune of seven scoreless innings. Your next outing at the Orioles. If you need to get right, That's not a bad way to get right. A start against the Marlins and then a start at the Orioles. All right, before we get to talking Washington football team on the show, I do want to react to what went down for the Capitals in Wednesday night's expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken. And I probably should say Wednesday's expansion draft because the Kraken submitted its picks to the NHL during the day And so many of the picks ended up being reported as the day went on. What was the point of televising the expansion draft on Wednesday night if so many of the picks were going to get leaked? I mean, so much of the drama was gone. Anyway, bad news for the Caps. The Kraken took Vitek Vanacek, the guy who was the Caps' primary goaltender last season, not by choice, but by necessity, now is gone. Not selected from the Caps were any of the many defensemen who the Caps left unprotected, principal among them Brendan Dillon and Justin Schultz. Not selected from the Caps was Connor Sheary, and not selected from the Caps was Alex Ovechkin. No surprise there. Hopefully a contract extension for him gets announced sometime soon, as he is technically said to be an unrestricted free agent this summer. But yeah, Vanacek is gone. Not that he's some outstanding goaltender. He isn't. Uh, Not that he possesses sky-high upside. He doesn't. But the Caps don't have much at goaltender right now. They have Ilya Samsonov, but he's set to be a restricted free agent. So the Caps need to figure out a contract for him. And he needs to figure himself out. Uh, The Caps do have Phoenix Copley, but he's not a number one goaltender. At least we don't think. And we have no idea what to think about the Henrik Lundqvist situation. So the Caps last October 9th announced the signing of Lundqvist to a one-year, $1.5 million contract off the final season of a 70-year contract 
with the New York Rangers having been bought out. But Lundqvist on December 17th stunningly announced that he would be stepping away from hockey due to a heart condition. He on December 28th announced that he would be undergoing open heart surgery. And Lundqvist this past April 11th tweeted that a checkup the previous week had shown some inflammation around his heart and that he needed, quote, a few months more of rest and steady recovery, end quote. So in no way can you consider King Henry a viable factor for the Capitals at goaltender. This guy may never play again in the NHL. So Brian McClellan is going to have to do something at goaltender this offseason because even Samsonov can't be counted on. It may be that Samsonov is the Caps' number one goaltender, but the Caps need to have a viable backup option. In other words, a number two goaltender who the team would feel very comfortable with as the number one goaltender. Because first of all, Samsonov has been inconsistent in terms of his play. Second of all, Samsonov can't be trusted. Okay, I mean, let's just tell it like it is. Samsonov has caused one headache after another for the Caps. He was unavailable for the restart to the Caps 2019-2020 season. The Caps on July 25th, 2020 announced that Samsonov, who had not taken part in any practice during training camp, had suffered an injury prior to camp and would not travel with the team to the Eastern Conference hub city of Toronto. We then had a report from Russia in August of 2020 saying that Samsonov had gotten hurt in an ATV accident in Russia. Samsonov missed a ton of time this past season due to two absences caused by COVID-19 protocols. And look, if somebody gets COVID-19, that of course doesn't make that person a bad person or necessarily irresponsible, but every circumstance is different here. Samsonov missed a big chunk of time early in the season due to having COVID-19. And this apparently was a real case. You know, this wasn't like he was asymptomatic. Uh, Samsonov this past February 8th talked about how he had trouble breathing and walking while dealing with COVID-19. But him having COVID-19 came off he and three other Russians on the caps, Alex Ovechkin, Evgeny Kuznetsov, and defenseman Dmitry Orlov, violating the NHL's COVID-19 protocols to where the NHL on January 20th fined the caps $100,000 for player violations of the league's COVID-19 protocols. And then Samsonov missed the final five games of the Caps' regular season. And then the first two games of the Caps' five-game first-round series loss to the Boston Bruins in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. The first game of those seven games that he missed late in the season due to team suspension as he and his guy Kuznetsov were late to a team function. Then you had Samsonov out due to COVID-19 protocols. And Samsonov being out coupled with Vitek Vanacek suffering a lower body injury in the first period of game one of the series against the Bruins meant that Craig Anderson, who was in his age 39 season and who had started just two games for the Caps during the regular season, ended up being the Caps' primary goaltender in game one and starting goaltender in game two. And then we had at least a bit of controversy in the Caps not allowing Samsonov to participate in the International Ice Hockey Federation World Championship. So the official Hockey Russia Twitter on May 25th announced that the Caps had not approved Samsonov to join Team Russia at the 2021 IIHF World Championship as Caps doctors had not cleared Samsonov. So it just feels like there's always something with this guy. He's got talent. And I wouldn't just dismiss him, okay? I mean, I would still work with him and try to cultivate his skills and see if he can become the number one goaltender he was drafted to be. But to me, it's been very off-putting. All these different things that have popped up with this guy over the last few years, he's got to demonstrate more of a want, more of a desire 
to be a franchise goaltender because he can be a franchise goaltender. The Caps took Samsonov with the number 22 overall pick in the 2015 NHL entry draft. And again, the skill set seems to be there, but it's not just about your skill set. It's about your work ethic. It's about your accountability. It's about your reliability. And ultimately, it's about your performance on the ice and his performance on the ice has been mediocre. But whatever, even if he takes great strides off the ice this offseason and says and does all the right things, you need multiple starting caliber goaltenders in the NHL. And so Brian McClellan is going to have to do some hunting and some digging here as the Caps no longer have Vitek Vanacek. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, my friends, the time has come. Let's get to it. Our countdown to Washington football team training camp. Do you realize we are just days away from the start of Washington football team training camp? The countdown is taking on increasing urgency because remember, it is the final countdown. It's the final countdown. Yes, that's right. It is the final countdown. Now, you can always tweet me at Al Galdi. I got this tweet from a man, Ben, on Wednesday evening. He wrote me, if Rick rolling someone is Rick rolling someone, what do you call what Galdi is doing to me every time he says, he says, final countdown. So Rick Rowling has to do with the Rick Astley classic, Never Gonna Give You Up, which, by the way, has been played a bunch at my gym recently. I'm not sure what that's about, uh, but I've heard a whole lot of Never Gonna Give You Up here over these last few weeks. But yeah, man, the Europe classic, the final countdown. How can we not embrace that here as we continue our final countdown to Washington football team training camp? It will begin on Tuesday, July 27th, and Richmond will take place in Richmond through July 31st, then we'll move to the team facility in Ashburn. And so I am giving to you a position group by position group breakdown of the team heading into training camp. We go in-depth on one position group each show. The three biggest questions for the position group for training camp, excluding injury, excluding does everyone stay healthy? That is a question for every position group. We call that a cop-out question. No cop-out questions allowed on the Al Galdi podcast. Also, these are questions for training camp, questions to which we'll have answers by the end of training camp, not questions for the upcoming season. Now, the beauty of the podcast 
is that you can listen to anything that you may have missed at any time. So if you have missed any of our deep dives, they are all waiting for you with open arms. Episode 100, I talked defensive line. Episode 101, I talked tight end. Episode 102, I talked offensive line. Monday show, episode 103, I talked linebacker. Tuesday show, episode 104, I talked corner. Wednesday show, episode 105, I talked running back. And now, on this episode 106, we conclude the defensive portion of the position group by position group breakdown. We conclude the defensive portion of the final countdown by talking safety. Has any position in Washington, D.C. sports been more of a problem over the last 15 years than safety on the team now known as the Washington football team? The list of safety fails for Washington since the death of Sean Taylor in November 2007 is a mile long. Just to name a few, Laron Landry, Ashimago Atagwe, Brandon Merriweather, Bakari Rambo, Ryan Clark in terms of his second go-round with Washington, Sua Cravens, one of my personal favorites, Duke Iannaccio. Duke Iannaccio. Yes, Duke Iannaccio, or as some like to say, Duke Iannaccio. David Bruton Jr. Monte Nicholson. Another one of my personal favorites. Ha ha, Clinton Dix. Ha ha. Yes, ha ha. The joke was on us. Ha ha. And on and on this list goes. It has been so rare since Sean died that any Washington safety has had a good season. DJ Swearinger was good for a bit, but he then ultimately flamed out spectacularly. Remember, DJ Swearinger got waived by Washington on Christmas Eve 2018. I'll never forget that. DJ went from playing at an all-pro level in the first half of that season to getting waived on Christmas Eve. He, over his two seasons with Washington, sounded off after a loss by my count at least seven times. And he wasn't necessarily wrong about what he said, but enough was enough, dude. Like, you couldn't keep mouthing off after these losses. His play did decline, and Washington waived him on Christmas Eve 2018. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Man, did that 2018 season go down the tubes as the season went on. That 2018 season for Washington at safety was something else. You had the Swearinger flame out and you had the fail that was that trade for Ha Ha Clinton Dix. Ha Ha was having a good season for the Green Bay Packers. It looked as if Washington had its best safety tandem in years with him and Swearinger. And then Ha Ha decided not to tackle anyone. <laughs> yes, haha, the joke was on us. Uh, this past season, the 2020 season, a wild season for Washington at safety. Washington went into the 2020 season with Landon Collins and Troy Apke as a team starting safeties. Washington ended the season with Cameron Curl and Jeremy Reeves as the team's starting safeties. And ultimately, the safety play from Curl, a seventh round rookie, and Reeves, a 2018 undrafted free agent, was much better 
Then the safety play was with Collins and Apke. And remember, prior to Reeves becoming a starter, we had DeShazer Everett as a starter, and he was much better than Apke. DeShazer, a 2015 undrafted free agent. So where are we now with Washington at safety? Is the curse for Washington at safety since the death of Sean Taylor now over? There's a lot to sort through. Here we go. Question number one for the Washington football team at safety in training camp. What up with Landon Collins? And when I say what up, I mean that both in terms of position and health. So there was quite a bit of chatter during the offseason about Landon potentially moving from strong safety to linebacker. Jack Del Rio, in a conversation with Washington football team senior vice president of media and content, Julie Donaldson, on May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, did say that Landon would be staying at strong safety, although Jack also said that the way that Landon will be used might at times look like he's being used as a linebacker. But there's no indication that a formal position switch is being made. It's not like Landon has bulked up to play linebacker. Okay, fine. But where does this leave Cameron Curl? The 2021 season will be just Landon's age 27 season. The season will be the third season of a six-year, $84 million contract that he signed with Washington as an unrestricted free agent in March 2019. Landon Collins' contract includes $31 million guaranteed. Landon Collins' contract works out to an average annual value, an AAV of $14 million. That is a lot of money, season in, season out, that Washington is paying Landon Collins. He was not good last season, and then he suffered a ruptured Achilles. Landon's tackling over the first four games of last season was terrible. Landon, for the 2020 regular season for Sport Radar, totaled nine missed tackles. He finished tied for the fourth most missed tackles on Washington last regular season, despite playing in just seven games. All nine of Landon's missed tackles happened over the first four games of the season. And then Landon suffered a ruptured Achilles tendon. That happened to that 25-3 win over the Dallas Cowboys at a rainy FedEx field in week seven. And what's ironic about that game is that Landon was having his best game of the season. The Cowboys' first offensive drive, which started at the Cowboys' one, resulted in a first quarter safety thanks to a Landon Collins sack strip of Andy Dalton on a third and eight. Collins blew by the Cowboys' tight end Dalton Schultz on a blitz for the sack and then did a beautiful job of chopping the ball with his right arm out of Dalton's right hand. But soon after that, Landon suffered the ruptured Achilles. Landon was fine in his first season with Washington 2019, but he was bad over six games last season, then suffered the ruptured Achilles tendon in game seven. And then it was Cameron Curl time. Washington took Curl in the seventh round of the 2020 NFL draft out of Arkansas. Curl in the 2020 season started each of Washington's final 10 games, including the playoff game, the 31-23 loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field. Curl finished the 2020 regular season as Pro Football Focus's highest graded rookie safety with an overall grade of 68.1. Curl in the 2020 regular season had three interceptions. He became the first Washington rookie to have an interception in each of two consecutive games since Carlos Rogers in 2005. And among those three interceptions was a pick six, came in that 23-15 win over the San Francisco 49ers in Arizona in week 14. Curl, a 76-yard pick six 
on the final defensive snap of the third quarter. He also had a first quarter interception in the 2014 win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday Night Football in Week 17 to clinch the NFC East. And Curl, yes, is a position flex guy. Position flex. Yes, position flex. Cameron Curl, during the 2020 regular season for Pro Football Focus, played at least 150 snaps at each of three spots, box safety, free safety, and slot corner. Let me make this clear. I want Cameron Curl playing a lot in 2021. I do expect him to play a lot, but what is this going to mean for Landon Collins? What exactly are we looking at here with Landon? Because I don't just see Washington benching Landon moving forward. The Landon Collins storyline is a big one for training camp. How he's doing coming off the ruptured Achilles and what sense do we get for how the strong safety position will be handled? Is Curl the guy or does Landon, because of his reputation and let's be honest, his contract, get reinstalled as the guy? Now, there are ways to play both at the same time, so it doesn't have to be an either or situation, but ultimately, there will be a hierarchy. Who is at the top of the Washington strong safety hierarchy? Question number two for the Washington football team at safety and training camp. Who is the starting free safety? This sets up to be quite the competition. Maybe the best position battle at Washington football team training camp. This battle at free safety. Bobby McCain versus DeShazer Everett versus Jeremy Reeves. A three-way battle. A three-way dance. Uh, The favorite, in theory, would be Bobby McCain. But like I said in our breakdown of Corner on Tuesday's show, episode 104, WashingtonFootball.com actually lists Bobby McCain as a corner, not as a safety. Uh, McCain is a position flex guy. Position flex. Yes, position flex. McCain has played slot corner a bunch, so that's going to be something to follow, the deployment of Bobby McCain. But if him being the starting free safety is an option, then he is very much an option. The Miami Dolphins released McCain on May 6th. Washington signed McCain as an unrestricted free agent on May 17th. The contract, by the way, is a total nothing contract, a one-year deal with just $450,000 fully guaranteed at signing, a salary cap hit of just $1.46 million. This is a potential steal of a deal. Bobby McCain played a lot for a 2020 Dolphins defense that was very good against the pass. McCain in the 2020 regular season started 15 of the Dolphins' 16 games, played in all 16 games, and he was number two on the team in defensive snaps at 89.26%. He did this for a Dolphins team that finished number six in the NFL in pass defense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric and finished number one in the NFL, in third down defense. McCain, though, for pro football focus, had an overall grade for the 2020 regular season of just 62.1. So he certainly wasn't perfect last season. There's a reason, right, that the Dolphins released McCain. Uh, But Bobby McCain is relatively young. This upcoming season will be just his age 28 season. And Bobby McCain has been mostly durable. McCain, over his six seasons with the Dolphins, 2015 through 2020, played in 87 of a possible 96 regular season games. He in the 2019 season played in just nine games due to a shoulder. But beyond that season, McCain has held up in terms of the body. Uh, Bobby McCain also seems to be a Ron Rivera culture guy. McCain was a captain for the Dolphins in the 2020 season. And he's a great story. The Dolphins took McCain in the fifth round of the 2015 NFL draft out of Memphis. 
He played for the Dolphins for six seasons, 2015 through 2020, including being a regular starter for the Dolphins over his final three seasons with the team. What about DeShazer Everett? To me, DeShazer just needs to stay healthy. Uh, This coming season will be DeShazer's age 29 season. He, in the 2020 regular season, played in just 11 games with six starts. DeShazer, in that 2019 loss at the New York Giants in Week 6, started at free safety over Troy Apke, who had started at free safety in each of Washington's first five games of the season. Remember, Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio gave Troy Apke a real shot at being the starting free safety, the FS1, to begin last season. Things did not go so well, and DeShazer Everett ended up being put out there as a starter, beginning with that week six loss at the Giants. And DeShazer became a stabilizer on the back end. I mean, was he spectacular? No, but he got the job done. Washington's defense settled down in terms of giving up the big play with DeShazer Everett back there. Now, this did come with a softening of the schedule. That is true, but I thought DeShazer overall did a pretty good job. He ended up starting four straight games at free safety, then missed two consecutive games due to an ankle injury, then started the next two games, but then was placed on the reserve slash injured list last December 17th due to a chest injury that was suffered in that win over the 49ers in Arizona in week 14. So DeShazer last season dealt with an ankle injury, then dealt with a chest injury. If he's healthy, he's a factor. If he's not healthy, well, then you know how that goes. And then there's Jeremy Reeves. Reeves, how about his story from last season? So this coming season will be Reeves' age 25 season. He is the youngest of these three in terms of McCain, Everett, and Reeves. And what a story Jeremy Reeves ended up being in the 2020 season. Reeves in the 2020 season started each of Washington's last three regular season games and the loss to the Bucks in the playoffs. Reeves in the 2020 regular season registered an overall grade for pro football focus of 81.2, which is really good. Also, remember what Reeves did in that playoff loss to the Bucks. He blocked an extra point attempt. He blocked the Ryan Suckup extra point attempt that followed Tom Brady's first quarter touchdown bomb to Antonio Brown. So the Bucks lead, instead of being 10 nothing, ended up being 9 nothing. Uh, so the Jeremy Reeves backstory. Washington promoted Reeves from the practice squad, the active roster. That was the corresponding roster move on October 27th of last year to Washington placing Landon Collins on the reserve slash injured list due to that ruptured Achilles tendon. Ron Rivera, very notably, in October 2020, chose to promote Reeves from the practice squad as opposed to signing former Carolina Panthers safety Eric Reed, who was a free agent and who remains a free agent. Remember, It also was on October 27th of last year that we had the news that Washington had offered Eric Reed a practice squad spot that he had declined. Eric Reed to the Associated Press, quote, I just don't think playing on the practice squad is reflective or indicative of my career, end quote. Well, good for Eric Reed. More power to Eric Reed if he wants to think that way. But Jeremy Reeves ended up getting promoted from the practice squad and ended up doing really well as last season went on. You wonder if Eric Reed perhaps regrets not taking that practice squad offering from Ron Rivera, who, by the way, is a big Eric Reed fan. Ron has had nothing but nice things to say about Eric Reed since Ron became Washington's head coach. Reeves entered the NFL as an undrafted free agent out of South Alabama with the Philadelphia Eagles in April 2018. Washington signed Reeves to its practice squad in September 2018, promoted him to the active roster in December 2018. He was waived by Washington, and it's cut down to 53 for each of the next two seasons, 2019 and 2020, but was signed back to the practice squad to begin each season. It's been some kind of ride for Jeremy Reeves. And question number three, 
for the Washington football team at safety and training camp. Is Derek Forrest more than just a special teams ace? If there's a wild card in Washington's safety situation, that wild card is Derek Forrest. And look, the idea of what Derek Forrest truly is, that is a question to which we won't get a full answer until the season, but we can get a partial answer, maybe even a mostly full answer over the course of training camp. I'm interested to see whether Derek Forrest is a factor at safety to any significant extent in terms of practice reps and in terms of how he's talked about. So Derek Forrest is the safety out of Cincinnati. Washington took him with its fifth round pick in the 2021 NFL draft. He is yet another athletic freak selected by Washington in the 2021 draft. Forrest per Kentley Platy's relative athletic score, RAS metric, with what he did at Cincinnati's Pro Day, ranked as the 25th most athletic size-adjusted free safety prospect out of 772 free safety prospects from 1987 through 2021. Number 25. I mean, how about that? Uh, Derek Forrest is known as a special teams demon, but the guy also can play the position of safety. Forrest was a consistent and productive player for Cincinnati. He was a three-year starter for Cincinnati. He started each of his final 28 games for the Bearcats, finished his collegiate career with six interceptions and 12 pass defenses. Forrest registered the following overall grades for Pro Football Focus over his three seasons as a starter for Cincinnati. 73.3, 73.4, and 76.1. Again, consistency. Uh, Derek Forrest in 2020 played a major role for a Cincinnati team that really was one of the best defensive teams in college football. If you follow college football, you know the Cincinnati last season ranked ninth in the FBS in defensive efficiency per ESPN. Now, Derek Forrest does prefer to play strong safety. He, during a Zoom press conference shortly after Washington drafted him on May 1st, said that he thinks of himself as a strong safety. Of course, there's what he thinks, and then there is what Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio think. Uh, safety is a crowded position for Washington. Washington appears to have a depth at safety, the likes of which Washington hasn't had at safety in years. How does Forrest fit into all of this? And could Derek Forrest be the Cameron Curl or Jeremy Reeves of the 2021 season? You know, every NFL season has its pleasant surprises. That's always something to be thinking about this time of year. Who are the potential pleasant surprises for the upcoming season? Well, it will be no surprise that our next guest brings it strong in terms of opinion. There will be no ha-ha Clinton Dix-like hesitation. Ha-ha! <laughs> yes, thank you. Ha-ha, the joke was on us. We continue the Washington football team conversation right now with a good friend, Scott Jackson, with whom I worked for years at the Team 980. He has been the host of the official Washington football team postgame show for the last five seasons. I hosted the show for seven seasons, 2009 through 2015. Scott has been doing the show since 2016. And Scott knows the Wizards really well as well. He hosted the Wizards radio postgame show for years. I, as a punk kid just out of college, served as Scott's producer for some of those shows. We're talking like the first season in which Michael Jordan was a player for the Wizards, 2001-2002. But Scott, my friend, it's great to have you on. How are you? Very good, Al. Yeah, I almost forgot about those uh, those golden years, uh, if you will, with the uh, with the Wizards broadcast. But 
Imagine, you know, I was telling somebody the story the other day, Al, that, that team was coming off a 19-63 and 63 team, and there couldn't have been a worse job at Sports Talk 980 than being the Wizards radio host. And people used to be like, why the hell are you doing this? And I was like, ah, you know, I want to get out of the studio. It's a professional sports team, if nothing else, right? And then the next year, my year two, Michael Jordan says I'm back. And I'm like, all right, there you go. Now, whose job sucks? You know, and everybody wants to talk to you and know you. The ultimate elevation of status when MJ played. And we know things didn't work out great ultimately, but it was a lot of fun for a few seasons to have Michael Jordan yes, it was. Uh, as a player. All right, so we'll get to the Wizards because you know Wes Unsell Jr., but I do want to get your take on the football team. Uh, training camp is set to get going this Tuesday, July 27th in Richmond. There's a lot of optimism regarding Washington for this coming season. What's interesting is that the optimism isn't just coming from fans or from local media. It's coming from national media, and it's been a long time since we've had that. Do you share in that optimism? Yeah, look, I think you have to be, like I'm always, I used to always joke around with, with this team a year, for years, saying I was cautiously pessimistic. Uh, but, but I am more the cautiously optimistic person now. And look, if you're not, to be honest with you, if you're in July and you think your team's season is going to be utter crap, um, then, you know, you're really in trouble, right? Then you're probably, you know, Jacksonville or somebody like that, you know, a couple seasons ago. I mean, even in Jacksonville feels good right now. Everybody feels good when the season is fresh and it's about to start. But I think this team has a reason to, as, you know, crazy as the uh, start of last year was, as terrible as the quarterback play was at times, uh, and then obviously the injuries with Alex Smith, you know, basically being a wounded animal out there at times, it looked like, you know, they were still able to get enough wins, yes, to win a crappy division, at seven and nine, but at the same time, you know, you figure if you had better quarterback play, better offense, there was a few other games to be had there. So, uh, yeah, I do feel that. Look, and, and I think Ron Rivera, you know, when you talk nationally, Al, it's because of Ron Rivera. He's highly regarded um, around the league. He's well liked uh, as a person because of his character and, and who he is, and he's kind of a straightforward guy. And I've had, you know, unfortunately with with COVID very few uh, conversations off the off the uh, air with him, but the ones I've had, I've been very impressed. He's a, he is as good as advertised. There's no fake about him. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited about that part of it. And yeah, I think they've made some improvements in, in some key areas. So, but we'll, you know, again, you got to go out and play. You got to be healthy. Uh, you know, a lot of things have to fall into place. It's a, it's a grind. It's a 17 game schedule now. I mean, it's a, it's a whole different world. Yeah, the math is all Fukakta now with records from previous years versus what you think about records in coming years. But I think that's good. Thankfully, no more four games in the preseason. At least that gets whittled down to three. When you look at the division, I mean, the conventional wisdom is that Dallas is the team to beat, although not everyone feels that way. How do you size up the NFC East? Yeah, I think Dallas, look, they, although they were having, Dak Prescott was having a great year. They weren't winning, but he was having a great year. Um, you know, they were they were losing games we thought they probably should have won. Their defense was atrocious. Can't be any worse, right? I mean, I, I would be shocked if it was any worse than it was. I think they made some – I think their draft was good. I mean, they got the guy I would have wanted Washington to get in Parsons um, out of Penn State. Um, they, they, they did really well um, in that regard. But they got to go out and do it. We've seen this a million times in Dallas. They're the team to beat, and then they throw a ball for themselves. That's kind of the nature of that franchise. Um, and I, I think, though, yes, talent-wise, they're the best team. I can't imagine Ezekiel Elliott will be as mediocre as he was last year. That's one of the reasons why I would be optimistic about them. Um, I think the offensive line, you know, you'd think would be healthier. Um, so I get that. The Giants, I got no feel for. Uh, Saquon Barkley keeps telling people he has no idea when he's going to play, which could, would concern me if I was a Giants fan. Uh, Daniel Jones, though, you know, besides beating this team, uh, you know, still a lot. Like, eh, is he really – 
is he really any good? He's kind of an average, you know, game management kind of guy. But yet against Washington, he makes all kinds of plays, right? Against this team, he looks like a different guy. And I, and I think Philly's the biggest unknown of everybody just because, you know, it was great that Jalen Hurts flashed at times last year. But, you know, he didn't really ever have a long enough sustained uh, a group of games, I didn't think, to, to have a real great feel for it. If I was them, I would have I would have made Carson Wentz sit in a room with whoever my coach was going to be. I probably would have given Peterson another year and made him hash it out. I, I, I thought that was a panic move on Philly's part. I hope it's a terrible move on their part in the end, but we'll see. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, so I can understand why people look at Washington and say, hey, you know, they got a good young defense, a year together. They had no offseason. Now they have an offseason together. Uh, Fitzpatrick is going to be an upgraded quarterback as long as he's not, you know, Fitz tragic. So I, I can see why people would, would tend to pick this team to win the division, too, if, if not, they're not fighting on Dallas. So with Fitzpatrick at quarterback, it became impossible to ignore the extent to which Ron Rivera was talking up this quarterback competition. And it was interesting, right? He would not welcome Kyle Allen into the mix. He kept framing it as Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke. You have a unique perspective on this. You went to ODU, so you were giving Taylor Heineke $100 handshakes back in the day when he was a quarterback <laughs> at ODU. It's actually $10. Okay. Okay. Uh, but what do you think here? I mean, is there a realistic path by which Heineke could become the starting quarterback? Or do you think this is all a bunch of talk and the job is going to be Fitzpatrick's basically no matter what? Uh, you know, I Wes Fitzpatrick just totally lost it. I, I don't see how Heineke starts the season as a quarterback. Doesn't mean he can't play a bunch of weeks. Um, and if again, if there's the Fitz tragic part of this magic, uh, I could see him playing. Or if he gets hurt, obviously, I think they'd be very comfortable throwing him into some games. I, I think the whole Kyle Allen thing is more about his health, right? I don't think he's ready to do everything. So they see how far Heineke's come along. I think Heineke impressed them coming back, being all buff. Uh, you know, from working out in the offseason. Look, and to Taylor's credit, I mean, all the things that people have said about him, why they were concerned about him in the NFL, he has tried to put to bed by, you know, and he, he, he takes it head on. He's, look, i got to be healthier. i got to be in better physical condition uh, so I don't have these weird injuries. Because the poor guy started two games and he came out of both of them with injuries, right? Um, you know, and he, he did, obviously, even in the playoff game, although he finished it out. So, yeah, I would think, look, Fitzpatrick's been around the league. He's seen everything. I just think the experience level of him, it seems like the guys, you already hear little things about, wow, this dude, you know, people really get into what he's all about. Um, you know, you know how crazy we all went over the last several years, even when before Alex Smith's injury, about, man, just take a chance, take a shot downfield, right? Um, and now th- this is the guy who ultimately, he doesn't give a damn, right? He's got absolutely no conscience. And I think Taylor, quite frankly, can be that kind of player too. And I actually think all three quarterbacks have some similar traits and that they are pretty fearless. Obviously, Kyle Allen found out the hard way that can get you hurt in that Spielberg, or excuse me, the Rams game. Um, so, you know, but all three of these guys have a fearless nature about them. They all can get out of their own way. Uh, they'll all throw it downfield. Sometimes, you know, maybe not the best decisions. But, you know, I, I think um, they're all very similar. But in terms of the experience level, who's seen it all, he's been in a million different systems and it doesn't seem to bother him. Uh, to me, yeah, Fitzpatrick, I would be very surprised if he wasn't the guy coming out of camp. With Taylor Heineke as a player, is the health the only major impediment to him being a quality starting quarterback, or do you see real limitations with what Heineke can be, even if he does stay healthy? I think it is the the size, his size, which goes back to the health, would be the thing I said coming out of college concerned me about him. There wasn't a whole lot of guys his size, except for Drew Brees, everyone's Drew Brees out there, right, that are they're getting it done and starting at the NFL level. 
on a consistent basis. The other thing that I, I think and we would, we didn't see this much this year, quite frankly, because he only played five quarters, right? Five or whatever it was. Yes, yeah, five quarters, really four and nine minutes. It should have been longer if we'd have gotten him in earlier in that Panthers game. They might have won it. But anyway, um, he, you know, they, they said the arm strength, right? Like, can his arm hold up, like, for throwing the ball, you know, 500 whatever times in the NFL season? Well, hell, in college, this kid was winging around all the time. And granted, it's not the same level of DBs you can throw – you know, out beyond the, you know, the hash marks and, you, you know, and you can kind of float some and get away with it in college where in the NFL, you couldn't do that. I thought he showed plenty of arm strength. I mean, yeah, maybe, you know, he's not Aaron Rodgers or anybody like that, but I think he showed enough arm strength to, to be successful um, at the NFL level. Now, again, just like anything else and Ron Rivera mentioned this too, you don't know until it plays out because yes, he was at a, at that time he was there an FCS school, you know, at old dominion. Um, so you really will never know until you get to see him at the NFL for consecutive weeks, right? Getting string good starts together. And I think Ron hit this, and I asked the same question to myself a few times to the people around uh, who asked me about Taylor, is would he be the same kind of quarterback if he was given the starting job, right? If not given, but he earns it, right? He's a starter. Would he play as fearless? Would he dive at the pylon? I think he even said, yeah, yeah, that's probably not a play I make in the regular season, right? I mean, you just get the first down and get, get the hell out of bounds, right? Which is fine. It would have been a smart play, too. But, you know, the fearless nature, you saw him come out in the Carolina game, and he just started winging it. You know, he didn't care. Um, and you're like, wow, where has this been in the offense, right, all season? And those kind of things. So I just wonder if he would still have the same mentality. Um, and maybe around a guy like Fitzpatrick will be good for him. Because I think, again, similar similar kind of players in, in that regard. Um, and, you know, I think, like I said, similar skill set. So I, I'm just like everybody else. As much as I'd love to say definitely I know I'd bet my house on it, you know, I'm like everybody else. You, you still have to see it play out and, and play. But, yeah, I think he has – the attributes to be a, a quarterback that can play at a high level and start. It's interesting to me with Ryan Fitzpatrick because he's been a good starting quarterback over the last few seasons. I don't think he gets enough credit for that. When you look at how Washington ultimately handled the quarterback position this offseason, signing Ryan Fitzpatrick to the one-year $10 million deal as opposed to, say, making the trade-up in the draft, to take Justin Fields or offering more to the Detroit Lions for Matthew Stafford. Are you good with Washington having gone with Fitzpatrick? Look, they had other holes to fill. I mean, here's the thing. If you say, for example, you'd have traded up or you'd have traded for Matt Stafford, right? If you'd given up multiple picks for Stafford, you wouldn't have, you know, your inside linebacker position would still be in flux or your, your linebacker position, I should say, would still be in flux. Um, you would still probably, you would have to go spend on that and, you know, in free agency, you know, who knows what you would have lost in the depth part of your draft as well. And, you know, I get it. There's a lot of smart coaches that think, you know, Matt Stafford's the, the key to the kingdom. Um, and all that, and you know, you've seen two coaches in the division say they would have, you know, Kyle Shanahan still bemoaning that they didn't get him, and, and obviously McVay celebrating that they got him. So, I, you know, I, I and I like Stafford, but it, it was it's still is it really a long term solution? No, it's not really a long term solution. Um, this is kind of a placeholder situation here, but again, I, I think they're still at the point where with with the holes they have, they need to do this unless they were going to get. You know, Joe Burrow in this draft, which I don't think Joe Burrow was in this draft. I'm okay with them kind of standing pat and doing what they did. Now, the tough part, of course, becomes if Ryan Fitzpatrick is what he's, you know, the worst version of himself this year. And, you know, and and Taylor Heineke is injured a lot and Kyle Allen is Kyle Allen. Then you're still kind of in the same thing going into next offseason. Go, damn, we got this really good defense. We've got some good pieces around it, but we still don't have that quarterback. We're talking Washington football team with the host of the official Washington football team postgame show. 
Scott Jackson. What would you say is your biggest concern with Washington for the upcoming season? Well, I mean, I still think safety is interesting because I don't know how Landon Collins fits in. Does that take Cam Curl off the field? Can they really play together? It doesn't really look like it. And those those things, the back end of the secondary, the back end of the defense, excuse me, is still a, a question for me. Um, you know, the offensive line, I like the depth they brought in, but I, I hope they're right at right tackle. Because look, for all the bitching and moaning we did about Morgan Moses uh, over the last few years, and last year not as much bitching and moaning, by the way, about Morgan Moses. He played every week, right? I mean, he showed up every week. Yeah, he got penalized. You know, last year he dropped down significantly in the penalties. It was the year before. I think he made that that move last offseason. Nobody even would question it. But I do think you better get that one right because I think that was the bold one. Of all the moves that uh, Ron Rivera's made since he's been here, I think that's that's the gutsiest one and the one that has the potential to come back and, and, and get questioned pretty hard if it, if it doesn't work out. Um, so that, I, I think, I'll tell you what, running back, if Antonio Gibson isn't healthy, um, boy, I hope they find some, you know, I hope they have some depth there, enough depth there if he's, if he's not completely healthy. Um, you know, they talked about his cutting and all that still being somewhat limited during the OTAs. Maybe when we get to training camp next week, it won't be an issue. That worries me a little bit. And obviously, yes, the quarterback, I'm with you. I thought Fitzpatrick was really good in Miami. I thought, frankly, had they kept playing him, they would have been an easy playoff team. They wouldn't have had to go down to the last week uh, and try to win at Buffalo to get in. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, he, I'm pretty confident that he'll be good. But, you know, yes, I still understand why people would question it. I think the receiving core is a lot better. So I'm not going to dog that. You know, tight end, do you have depth there? I mean, I guess you still look at that and say, you know, Logan Thomas doesn't build on what he did this year. Do you still have enough weapons at, at that position? Um, and they brought, you know, they brought Seals in, who's, who's a good veteran, um, for, you know, from Arizona over the years. So. You know, we'll see with that. But, yeah, that's still a position that, you know, you'd like to get uh, a young stud at at some point. Yeah, the Gibson toe thing is interesting. I brought it up on the last installment of the podcast. So he suffered that toe injury in the win at Pittsburgh. That was on December 7th. And then after one of these offseason practices on June 2nd, he says the toe is still an issue. Like six months later, the toe is still a thing. That, that, that to me, was kind of uh, worrisome. So we'll see where he's at uh, come camp. So I did want to talk Wizards with you because you know the Wizards so well. And of course, now our team has a new head coach in Wes Unsell Jr. I think there's a lot to like about Wes Jr. I know that you know Wes Jr. and are very familiar with his story. What do you think about the Wizards hiring Wes Unsell Jr. as head coach? All right. So when when the season ended and like, I, I you know, look, I like Scott Brooks, fine fellow. But honestly, since year two, he has not been a plus coach. He's not a seven million dollar year coach. After five years of it and really, you know, you can, I guess, hey, it was great they rallied this year after the crappy start. Um, you know, and they had COVID issues and all that stuff. And, you know, but I just felt like he was one of these guys that's wallowed too much in the pity at times. And it just drove me crazy. I think it trickled over to the team. And, and obviously he was not a plus coach on the defensive end. So I was like, look, you got to move on. First of all, just from the optics of it, if, you, if you're monumental sports, which means you're the Capitals ownership group, which they are, and you let a Stanley Cup champion coach go over a stupid bonus of 250 or whatever it was, or like you didn't want to pay him the extra freight, whatever it would have been, right? Millions. After winning a championship, after being the franchise that always choked, and you're going to let him walk, and if you would have re-upped Scott Brooks after five years of just nothing? I mean, come on. That would have been the worst look ever. So I was good with that. I'm like, clean slate. You could find an NBA assistant to do the same level job, if not better, uh, and you'd probably be a little hungrier. So when I saw the list of guys, of course, everybody loves Sam Cassell, who has become the Brian Shaw of his era. 
um, which is he's always up for jobs and never gets any for whatever reason. Of course, Shaw finally did, but didn't do very well. So hopefully he sells better luck when that happens. But anyway, so I was I saw West Angel Jr.'s name and a lot of people go, oh, that's such a, you know, that'd be such a, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, optics move. But no, it's not because he's actually earned it. He, when he, when he started at a Hopkins in the organization. His dad didn't make him, you know, the assistant GM or the second assistant on the bench. I mean, he was working in the video room. He was scouting. He was doing a lot of things. Over the years, the development of players. And everywhere you went, you talked to people about him. They always had good things to say about him. The year Eddie Jordan, of course, brought him on the bench. And this was after, you know, being in the organization for a while. Eddie Jordan put him on the staff. And I remember one of the seasons they were going to the playoffs. And it seemed like every year they were in that four, five, six mode. Like they could be anywhere going into the last week of the season. So they had like four or five options to play in the first round. Of course, they ended up playing Cleveland LeBron. Great. Uh, but anyway, I remember Eddie telling the story about how Wes Jr. was the guy who had all the work to do because he had to have the scouting reports on the teams and these huge binders. And I remember seeing him in the hotel in Cleveland, like, you know, you know, as they fought in the first round, like the size the Cavaliers wanted. Basically, you have one of those for all these other options that teams apparently made it for the for the coaching staff uh, to dive into as soon as the season was over. They knew who they were going to play. So I knew he was a hard worker. I always tell the story about I used to sit um, baseline quite a bit when I did the post game show for for the Wizards and watch the games, you know, at uh, back then MCI Center um, and you know, in Verizon Center. After that, and, and Eric, this guy Eric Spolstra used to sit near me, and he had a computer. Everybody else had no paper. These old scouts, half of them were just there taking naps and talking to each other and drinking coffee. And Eric Spolster is like, got all the plays already lined up. And he's like, clicking do all this crazy crap with his hands. I'm like, who is this guy? And I used to sit there and talk to him. And I got to know Eric Spolster. I, you know, then, then like a couple years later, Eric Spolster sitting behind the bench. And then all of a sudden, he's next to Pat Riley. And then, you know, I'm talking to people in Miami. They go, oh, this Spolster guy, man. Pat Riley loves this guy. You know, he's, he's a grinder. And I was like, well, yeah, I used to sit with him and he scattered. He was amazing. You know, he was doing stuff other guys weren't doing. But anyway, I kind of look at that. You know, I think about guys like that, right? West Jr., you know, he was that kind of guy for this organization. And then, as you've seen, he's bounced around the league. And, and, you know, they're crediting him for what the Nuggets did, um, you know, in terms of defense. And obviously, that, that's the thing, right? They, this team has to be better about defense. Now, like anything else, you got to have players. What kind of team are they going to have? Is he going to be coaching Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook and this other group? Um, or are they going to blow this thing up? Uh, and maybe get aggressive this offseason with a, with a real reboot of the franchise. And I'd probably guess not, but, you know, Bradley Beal doesn't want the max extension. Maybe they have to they have to change plans. So that's what I want to get to with you next. The long-term outlook with this roster, especially with Beal, it doesn't sound like the Wizards are inclined to blow this thing up. It does sound like the Wizards are going to run it back with Beal and Westbrook as the two major pieces, but also try to add perhaps a third major piece this offseason. We know that's easier said than done. Sure. What do you think about that approach of, okay, yeah, Beal can opt out after this season. Actually, Westbrook can opt out after this season, too. I don't know how realistic that is. But instead of resetting this thing, trying to redo this thing with Beal and Westbrook still leading the way. Well, here's the thing. You're going to have so much egg on your face if you ride this out with Beal and he walks when he gets a chance to walk and, you're, and you don't get the max value for him if you have to do a sign and trade and you're kind of forced and those things never work out very well. It would be terrible. So you really have to know the temperature of, of the room, right? you got to know. And I think they have a good relationship with Bradley. And I, and I believe in Bradley and I, and I think he means it when he says it and that he doesn't want to go anywhere. Right now. He, he's, he likes it here. Uh, he wants to be here. And you know what? What just happened last night Probably is good if you're the Wizards, uh, if you want to keep Bradley Beal Brown. Seeing a guy like Giannis who 
didn't watch first take for the last how many years hearing that he had to leave and go to the Lakers or to the freaking Knicks or one of these other, you know, you know, franchises that ESPN finds important. So it's great, you know, that there is this example. Now, is it is it realistic the Wizards are going to find their Giannis or you know what I mean? I don't I don't know. History says no. But hey, the Bucks history is pretty crappy, too. Uh, for a long time. So there's always that chance. Um, I, I just want a definitive plan. And I just, you know, that's always been the knock on the Wizards, right? Like, what is the plan, right? What What is your real plan? It always seems like it changes. We're going to be the next so-and-so. And then they change it to this other team. And then they're going to be this team. And they're going to be that team. Um, getting the third piece, much easier said than done. I can't imagine Davis Bertans is a ton of um, a ton of uh, suitors right now after the year he put together. Maybe you got to play him this year and see if he, you know, does well and plays value up and try to move him in a package or somebody. I don't know if anybody wants Rui Hachimori or, you know, or is uh, Denny going to get you any value or are those two guys going to develop into, you know, that third guy or even, you know, better yet, the second guy or the guy. You know what I mean? So you have to see it. We just didn't see enough of either one of them. I mean, at times, Rui does some really good things. Other times, like, man, what the heck is he doing out there? So it's hard to say. Uh, Abdi just didn't play enough, you know, this year before the injury to have a great feel for what he's going to be. Everybody says the right things about him, but of course it will. Um, so, you know, the rest of the roster is, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, it's still a lot of things that uh, that need to be fixed. I don't know where Thomas Bryant fits in this whole thing when he comes back. Uh, if he's somebody you can move and get something out of, I'm not sure. But, you know, I, I just want to see like a, a real plan moving forward. And I, but my feeling is they're going to they're going to roll this thing back with, you know, hopefully some tweaks. And, you know, unless Kawhi Leonard wakes up tomorrow and says he wants to play here, I, I don't I don't think there's a, a obvious path, path to, you know, competing with the Bucks next year. So with the other team that was in the just-concluded NBA Finals, the Phoenix Suns, do you think they offer hope to us as Wizards fans from a standpoint of the Suns turned things around quickly, the Suns made an NBA Finals with a veteran point guard who, you know, some people have said, hey, this guy, what does he really have anymore? And the Suns made the NBA Finals without like a true top five elite NBA player. I, I know it's not apples to apples necessarily, but I got to tell you, I was rooting for the Suns because I was like, man, if the Suns win the championship, that really does offer hope to teams like the Wizards. Do you think there are any parallels between what the Suns did and what the Wizards maybe could do? Who's our Aiden? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Who's Booker? I guess you could say Beal's Booker. He's better than Booker. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, look, the thing about Chris Paul that, that's great about Chris Paul is he's, he is a more of a share first point guard, right, than, than Russell Westbrook is. He's obviously a better shooter as well, and, and most people are. But, uh, you know, Westbrook is a great competitor. Uh, you know, the thing with Westbrook, as we found out this year, there's a difference between fresh Russ and injured Russ, right? There's a huge difference there uh, between the two. I guess you could say some. I mean, like, you know, all those things are wonderful, but you have to draft correctly. You have to make the right, obviously, the right free agent moves, uh, the right trades. I mean, I look at a guy like Jay Crowder. I love him, man. He, he's a tough-as-nails guy, and, yeah, he'll shoot himself out of a game and shoot himself into a game, you know. But I, but I like players like that. I don't I don't know who that is here, right? We don't, you don't see that here. Um, you know, that's the thing that Wes Unsell Jr. is going to have to establish early is defense. I'm sure we'll hear a lot about that, uh, you know, coming out of camp about defense. Curious to see what they do in the draft and what they what they can get, but you know they, they just need to have they, they just need to get better. They just need to get a better all around roster and that right chemistry and that right mentality. Um, but yeah, I mean certainly, I, I think look, I, I think anything that's different than you know Team LeBron versus you know whoever the next super team is is good for the league. I think either one of these champions, either one of these teams being champions, would be good for the league for the have nots of the world and the teams that are trying to climb up. 
you know, you look at a team like the Celtics, who had all this draft capital for a while and then still have some. You know, they, they've done some good things with some of those picks, but they also flailed and missed on, on a few of them. I mean, I don't think anybody would expect that Brad Stevens to be this quickly, you know, moving on to the front office and Danny Ainge would be going into retirement. Um, so there, there is, you know, it can change quickly in the league. I mean, you know, Houston, quote unquote, blew it up this year, but what do they really get out of it? I mean, they're going to have these late first round picks. I mean, that rarely works for you in the NBA. I mean, you need lottery picks to, to, to win normally. And obviously, you know, there's a Giannis out there every once in a while, so you don't need the early lottery pick, but it's very, it's very rare. Yeah, it's tough. In the NBA, it is so hard to go from bad to great. Heck, it's really hard to go from good to great. Scott, really nice having you on, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Alf, uh, longtime listener, uh, first-time guest. Appreciate it anytime, buddy. All right, good to talk with Scott Jackson. To put a capper on our Wizards conversation, how about what was out there on Wednesday? Mark J. Spears, senior NBA writer for ESPN's The Undefeated, reporting that, quote, according to sources, LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers have been on the hunt for a veteran point guard, and Paul, as in Chris Paul of the Phoenix Suns, is on the list. There have also been talks about Washington Wizards star Russell Westbrook being a potential candidate to move back home to Los Angeles in a sign-and-trade deal that could include free agent point guard Dennis Schroeder, forward Kyle Kuzma, and guard Talon Horton-Tucker, sources said, end quote. This would be an interesting transaction, but of course, so much of this depends on where exactly are you going here if you're the Wizards. You have your general manager, Tommy Shepard, You have your new head coach, Wes Unseld Jr. You have your top player, Bradley Beal, set to be able to opt out next offseason. You have to pick a lane this offseason and go down that lane. And so here's what I would say. If you want to trade Russell Westbrook, that's fine. There are compelling reasons to trade Russell Westbrook. He's coming off a good season by his standards, so you could argue you're trading him at a relative high value point. You would be unloading that Russell Westbrook supermax contract, so you would be opening up all kinds of salary cap space for yourself. You'd be getting younger. You'd be welcoming multiple attractive pieces. Schroeder, Kuzma, and Horton Tucker are guys who can play. I mean, Kuzma is a possible starter. Horton Tucker is an exciting young bench scorer. And Schroeder is an excellent defensive guard who also can score. I mean, we talk about the Wizards needing to be better defensively. You add Schroeder to a mix that already includes Daniel Gafford. All of a sudden, you know, you're cooking with some gas here in terms of the Wizards being better defensively. And you throw Denny Avdia into the mix because I think he can D up. And now you really maybe have something here in terms of the Wizards being appreciably better defensively. But if you're going to trade away Russell Westbrook, then you need to also trade away Bradley Beal unless you have certainty that Beal isn't opting out after this upcoming season. And I don't know how you can have that certainty, but it does you no good to trade away one superstar and be left with one superstar in a league in which you really need multiple superstars. Okay. And there are exceptions to everything, but the way you do it by and large in the NBA, right, is not lessening your number of superstars. It's increasing your number of superstars. And Russell Westbrook is a superstar. Now, again, there are compelling reasons to trade Westbrook. But if you're going to trade Westbrook, then to me, you really do need to be on board with trading Bradley Beal unless you know that Beal isn't going anywhere after this upcoming season. It's interesting with Russell Westbrook. I mentioned him having had a good season. He did, but it's tricky. You have to be careful with these things. So he certainly piled up the triple doubles. There's no question about that. It was exciting to watch him do 
as he did. The frequency with which this guy gets triple doubles really is spectacular. I mean, there's no question about that. The Wizards slash Bullets franchise record for career regular season triple doubles had been Daryl Walker's 15. Westbrook, just this past regular season, set single season and career franchise records with 38 triple doubles. And of course, he became the NBA's all-time leader in career regular season triple doubles with 184. He ended up averaging a triple double for the season. It ended up being the fourth time in his career that he averaged a triple double in a regular season. Oscar Robertson is the only other guy to ever average a triple double in a regular season. And he did this just once. Westbrook now has done this four times. Westbrook led the NBA in assists per game this past regular season at 11.74. That's a single season Wizards slash Bullets record. But also for Westbrook this past regular season, he was number two in the NBA among qualified players in most turnovers per 100 possessions per basketballreference.com. He had the ninth worst true shooting percentage among qualified players in the NBA. True shooting percentage is a shooting percentage that considers that a three is worth more than a two and accounts for free throws. And speaking of free throws, Westbrook this past regular season had the second worst free throw percentage of his career at 656. So you got to be careful when you talk about how great Westbrook's 2020-2021 season was. It was really good in some regards, but in other regards, it was kind of a prototypical Westbrook season, right? Westbrook is a complicated player. There are some very good things, but there are some maddening things. And when it comes to the NBA playoffs and the game slow down, Westbrook's talents can be mitigated. The bottom line here is this. The Wizards have got to pick a direction and they have to go full force in that direction. And if the direction is keeping Beal and Westbrook and trying to double down on that, I can accept that. I can understand that. But then that's what you have to do. And conversely, if the direction is, well, we want to trade Russell Westbrook to say the Lakers for these three players. Okay. I think a trade like that does make some sense. But if you're going to do that, then you got to tell me what are we doing with Bradley Beal? And if you still don't know if he's going to opt out after this season, then you need to trade Beal this offseason. Well, the Orioles, of course, have done their share of trading away stars over the last few years. As I have said many times, I am not invested in wins and losses for the Orioles this season. I pay attention to their record and run differential uh, just because they're so bad, but I have zero emotional investment in the outcomes of Orioles games. I am fully invested in how specific players are doing, but I am emotionless regarding the actual outcomes of Orioles games. I'm like Gustavo Fring on Breaking Bad, totally emotionless when it comes to the actual outcomes of Orioles games this season. I'm Gus from Breaking Bad. Let's just hope that things end better than they did for old Gustavo. Uh, But the Orioles, of course, are rebuilding. The Orioles are tanking. The truth is, the more losses, the better. And so if you share my mindset, you're not mad about what happened on Wednesday afternoon. If you don't share my mindset as an Orioles fan, uh, then, well, my deepest condolences. A 5-4 loss at the Tampa Bay Rays on Wednesday afternoon as the O's blew it. A chance to win a second consecutive series, and the Orioles blew a 4-3 ninth inning lead. Tanner Scott allowed two runs in the bottom of the ninth on three singles and a walk. You know, I haven't spent much time this season talking about the Orioles bullpen because it really doesn't matter. Uh, other than some potential trade chips. But the Orioles' bullpen really has been bad. The O's now have a relief pitching ERA this season 
of 494. The O's now are 15 for 30 on saves this season. 15 for 30. 50%. <laughs> that is atrocious. Uh, the O's now in American League worst, 31 and 64, with an AL worst run differential of minus 138. And the O's now have a COVID-19 situation. Uh, the Orioles starting pitcher on Wednesday afternoon was supposed to be Keegan Aiken, but the O's on Wednesday morning placed Aiken and outfielder Anthony Santander on the COVID-19 injured list. Now, as we know, this doesn't mean that both guys have COVID-19. It may simply be that each guy was a close contact of someone with COVID-19. But yeah, for the time being, both Aiken and Santander are on the COVID-19 IL. The corresponding roster move to the O's placing Aiken on the COVID-19 IL was recalling lefty pitcher Alexander Wells from AAA Norfolk. He ended up being the Orioles' starting pitcher for this game at the Rays on Wednesday afternoon. And Wells did a respectable job, all things considered. Three runs in five and two-thirds innings. I mean, you know, that's not going to make anyone forget Jim Palmer, but on short notice like that, that's a pretty decent job. Uh, Wells gave up two leadoff homers to Randy Arozarena, gave up an RBI triple to Joey Wendell, but also had seven strikeouts versus two walks. Wells is from Australia. Uh, he was signed by the O's as an amateur free agent in August 2015. Offensively for the O's, Cedric Mullins had a double and a single. He now has a 9-14 OPS on the season. That is by miles the best OPS for a qualified player on the O's. The next best OPS for a qualified Oriole this season is Trey Mancini's 793. I mean, how about that gap? Mullins at 914, Mancini at 793, more than 100 points worse. Speaking of Mancini, speaking of Boom Boom, he had a nice game on Wednesday afternoon, double and a single. Good series for Mancini. He in the series went 5 for 12 with a double, four singles, and a walk. Ryan Mountcastle, who had a great June but has not had a good July, did have a good game on Wednesday afternoon. A leadoff first pitch homer in the top of the fourth, a one-out first pitch RBI single in the top of the sixth, and a two-out full count walk in the top of the eighth, despite having been down to the count at one point, one-two, and Austin Hayes had an RBI double in the top of the first. So the O's lose two or three at the Rays. No game for the O's on Thursday. They, on Friday night, begin their three-game series against the Nationals at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday's show, episode 107, will feature a special guest, Aaron Schatz. Yes, we will be doing shots on our Friday show. Aaron Schatz, the creator of Football Outsiders and the editor-in-chief of Football Outsiders Almanac, 2021. You hear me reference the DVOA metric from Football Outsiders all the time. Aaron Schatz created DVOA. Aaron Schatz is the daddy of DVOA. He is the DVOA daddy. And we're going to go in-depth on the Washington football team. I promise you, you do not want to miss this if you're a Washington football team fan. Aaron is a pioneer in the analytics movement in football. We'll talk about that as well. Also, I'll continue my position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team heading into training camp by talking receiver, maybe the single most interesting position group on the Washington football team. So many guys to be thinking about. The competition beyond Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, and Cam Sims is going to be fierce. And maybe I should draw the line after Samuel 
Uh, Washington has a lot of promising, albeit unproven, players at receiver. And you could argue Washington has a depth at receiver that the team hasn't had in quite some time. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. Duke Econacho. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.